0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, We don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
2: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: Tracy, we've talked a lot about various stresses and price increases that we've seen throughout the economy. But one of the themes, I guess I would say is, and we, we've joked about it, is we talk about a lot of stuff that's very much in the background. Things that are sort of like disconnected or mediated by several steps from the end consumer.
2: Wait, Joe, can you explain that?
0: We talk, <laughs> we talk a lot, you know, like we recently talked about the increased price of pallets, right? right. And that's gone up a lot. But most people don't experience the increased price of wooden pallets or even the increased price of a shipping container in their day-to-day life.
2: Oh, I see. Well, I I don't know. Um, I guess the cost gets passed on like eventually, right? But yes, you're right. We're not like purchasing containers once a month um, in the same way that we are purchasing consumer goods and things like food and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, exactly right. That's all I mean, which is that a lot of these things are things you wouldn't necessarily see yourself. Even lumber, which we've talked a lot about on the show, you might not necessarily see. We've talked a lot about grain, which people see, but in many ways that manifests itself in the form of higher meat prices uh, or dairy prices Mm -hmm. for consumers. So a lot of these things, they seem to be like sort of like background factors that eventually feed through.
2: Yeah. But- on the other hand, since we're basically talking about inflation now, there are some price increases out there that are very much in front of consumers right now. Um, primarily food, right? I did a deep dive into mayonnaise right. and that was up like something like 8%. Oh, yeah. And everyone has an opinion on food inflation and what's going on. And it really seems to, um, I guess, touch a nerve with people.
0: Yeah, food inflation in particular, gasoline, probably the other one that people that really touches a mm. nerve. But food, for sure, and everyone has a theory, and everyone's trying to figure out, is this a macro thing that is something about the money supply or fiscal that's pushing the price of everything up? But with food, you also have this other dynamic of wet weather and other idiosyncratic factors. Anyway, I'm very excited because we're going to be uh, talking about another consumable good that is highly emotional for people. That's highly relevant to a lot of people. And that is the price of coffee.
2: Right. So truly something that a lot of people would consume on a daily basis. So the price of coffee has dramatically surged over the past year or so. And uh, I guess the question is, how much of that price increase is actually being passed on to consumers. And here I have to confess, I really have no familiarity with the coffee market at all. So I'm very, very curious to learn how purchasing actually works, um, how hedging works and how the coffee sort of gets from the farmers all the way to Starbucks or, you know, a can in the grocery store.
0: I am very excited about learning all that as well. So we have the perfect guest. We are going to be speaking with Ryan Delaney. He is the founder and chief analyst at Coffee Trading Academy. He has a uh, career of coffee trading, both the uh, spot, physical markets, futures, and so forth. And he trains companies. He gives them analysis and research on how the coffee market is doing. So we're going to learn everything about how this commodity market works, hopefully. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Why don't you actually just give us the very brief overview of why are we talking to you? What is your expertise in uh, the coffee market? How do you know it?
3: That's a good question. I got no idea why you guys are talking. <laughs> uh, so I've been I've been in the coffee industry for about a dozen years, um, but um, come up my entire sort of commodity uh, experience is, is in coffee. So I, uh, to give you, you know, the 30-second the, the version sure. of my, my background here, I started out uh, with one of the large multinationals in, in you know, their rotational uh, program um, that uh, is one of the top uh, traders of coffee. So I worked and lived in origin in uh, India and in Uganda, sort of buying coffee locally, processing it uh, and then exporting it uh, to to consumers. And then I came back to the u s and uh, traded coffee, physical coffee there for a little while before I transitioned to our company's hedge fund. And you know a lot of these large multinational commodity firms have hedge funds to sort of capitalize on their their information informational edge. you know hmm. Um, so I was the coffee and cocoa analyst and trader for our hedge fund. And uh, you know, one thing you'll hear a lot in the coffee industry—the more you talk to coffee people—is how much uh, there's. There's coffee guys, there's coffee gals. You know, uh, we refer to ourselves as coffee people. It's <laughs> it's very much a, a tight knit community. So uh, we, I, I missed that interaction. You know, so I I actually transitioned to the sell side from the from the hedge fund and and from the prop book I was trading. And from there, I was—that uh, was actually very interesting, because I was advising clients on managing their price risk, their coffee price risk, uh, across the supply chain. So that meant producers and exporters, trade houses and uh, and traders, speculators, but also roasters and consumers. So I kind of really got a, a crash course um in in price risk management Mm. for coffee. And that led me to uh starting this this firm that I uh work in now where I provide research and training to people who who have a a stake in the price in coffee.
2: So first of all, it's really um fascinating to think that a company like Nestle might have a a hedge fund nestled inside of it, um trading coffee futures. And I definitely want to ask more about that. But before we do, I have a very basic question and i was just thinking of it when when i said in the intro you know the price of coffee has surged if we say the price of coffee is at a 10 year high what are we actually talking about like what is the benchmark of uh, bean because i i know there there are obviously different types but like what's the bean equivalent of the i guess the 10 year us
0: treasury Okay, so <laughs> I love that question. The, 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 the bean equivalent of the <laughs> is a good question. U.S. Trade rate.
3: Yeah, well, if you could put it in financial terms, uh, yeah. So the coffee uh, futures market, affectionately known as the the C market, is the primary benchmark for the price of coffee. Now, as you kind of alluded to, there are two major types of coffee. There's Arabica, which is what we trade on the C market, uh, and then there's Robusta, which is what is traded on the the London uh, market. Hmm. Now the arabica market is traded in cents per pound, and the robusta market is traded in dollars per metric ton. But the arabica market is the larger, uh, more volatile, and more exciting uh, market. So that that also attracts a lot more of this the speculative uh, interest. Uh, but those are the two main markets that we're trading. And of course, there's there's you know a spot market. There's a cash market that's. Incredibly uh, varied because coffee has really exploded in the last twenty years uh, into this this idea of specialty coffee and fine coffee. So there's a whole you know secondary market out there, much like. There is for for wine, right? right? There's probably a benchmark price for wine, um, but there's also a huge variety on the you know on the the low and the high end.
0: So, quick quick question: Are these are the futures that are traded? Are they cash settled futures, or are they uh, physical delivery futures?
3: They are physical delivered, and um, it, that is an essential part of the uh, you know keeping the the these futures honest. So, there really is. A connection, you know, the, uh, between the the futures prices and the and the physical, and, and that you know that's done through the certified stocks. It's particularly relevant because the exchange has set um, very steep aging penalties and And that exists for a very important reason, and that's to to facilitate that cash convergence, right? We don't want the certified stocks to just be a sort of a theoretical financial asset at the end of the day. Someone needs to take that coffee out of the warehouse and drink it right so they uh they put heavy aging penalties on that to incentivize uh, consumers to destock uh, certified inventory and consume it
2: so could we um dive into that a little bit more because I I was reading that people, traders, are using more futures than normal right now because they're worried they might not be able to get enough stockpiles on the physical, the spot market. So they're worried there won't be enough to actually take delivery of. Can you just explain how that process typically works and how much of trading is divided between um, spot And futures and sort of forward hedging versus buying right now? Because I imagine, again, a company like Starbucks or Nestle, which needs huge amounts of coffee every year, is probably hedging its exposure very far in advance.
3: Yeah, um, so it it really depends because there is a variety of size in the consuming side and on the export side as well right? So in, in, there is a threshold that you need of, of production or consumption to, to make hedging in the futures market relevant and, and, and useful. So for, for context, uh, a single futures contract of Arabica is 37,500 pounds. So if you're just a small mom and pop uh, roaster, you're probably not going to be hedging, you know, on the futures market. In terms of adding coverage, this is, as you kind of mentioned, something for the the bigger traders or the bigger consumers uh, to deal with. They have a a pretty you know clear system. They have a, a methodology to how they're they're acquiring coffee in general, and that is a combination of physical contracts and futures contracts. If you're if you're a large company like you know Nestle or Folgers or or whoever, you you have a a network of suppliers. Um, and you will put out, you know, sort of bounties. You'll say, hey, who wants to sell me coffee? Give me your best bids um, or offers rather. And, and they will uh, send out proposals to, to those big companies. I don't want to get too into at the moment, uh, the nuance of uh, differential contracts and, and, and price to be fixed contracts. But essentially, if you're a company like Nestle, you need to, there is a spread, right? There is a premium or a discount, to buying specific physical qualities of coffee to the futures contract. So there's there's two different kind of risks that they need to manage. But there, there is also a general larger correlation. So if you're a company uh, that does size, that needs that physical of coffee, you have the option of either buying that physical, making a physical contract with a, a producer or an exporter to buy that coffee. Or if you don't have a good deal, if there's not a good uh, uh, offer to you or or you're not sure exactly which qualities you want to buy, you could buy futures, right? So you could just buy you know, as much uh, of the physical that you need in futures contracts and hold that as a hedge until you are uh, prepared to uh, sell those out and, and buy your, your physicals.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
0: Just for the sort of my visual understanding of this, can you sort of walk through very quickly every player that's involved between the grower, and you mentioned you worked in India and Uganda, and then I drink some coffee let's say i buy it at a gas gas station or i drink it at the office like sort of like office office quality coffee which is actually very good at bloomberg by the way we have really good coffee <laughs> but anyway can you just talk like okay some there's a farmer in uganda or india can you just real quickly like the whole supply chain from farmer to mouth oh sure i can the coffee
3: industry is really divided into or let me put it this way the the farmers are primarily uh, divided into Brazil and everybody else. Okay. Now, historically, coffee is produced. It's a it's a small holder uh, production. It's done on small farms and small estates, um, and that's has geographical uh, underpinnings because coffee is what we call high grown. So it's grown in the mountains and it's tropical. So it's really only possible to grow coffee in tropical mountains. And that doesn't facilitate itself well to big mega farms. And so that that kind of has this sort of smallholder farmer implication. The exception to that is Brazil, which has these uh, very large plateaus. So they are able to grow large amounts of coffee, and indeed they're the world's largest producer of coffee, and mechanize it at the same time. So they're the exception where they have these uh these these large farms and and sort of the mass production of the the the, the farming of, of coffee. So you you're gonna have uh exporters now who are generally multinationals, but there's also local exporters as well, who are positioned in all of these uh key origins, these key producing origins. And they'll have buying centers. Uh, spread out throughout the the coffee farming regions, and much like you know, uh, grain elevators or whatever in in the U.S. and other countries, uh, the farmers will will have relationships with those buyers, and they'll know the prices, and they will uh, deliver. They will harvest the coffee themselves, and then they will deliver it to uh, the exporters. The processing of coffee is actually kind of nuanced as well. And there's two primary ways of processing coffee. So the coffee bean itself, like that brown bean that you see in, a, in the bag when you yeah. buy that bag, that is, starts out as a green bean inside of a ripe cherry, right? Like a red cherry a mm. piece of fruit. So the two ways of processing that and getting that bean to the roaster is either what we call the natural process, which means that the farmer picks those those cherries they spread them out on a patio to dry and they they dry over that bean like a like a kind of like a raisin you know um like a hard raisin and you can actually pick those up and and shake them and hear a little rattle inside when they're when they're ready or they have the wash process and with the wash process you're picking that ripe cherry and you are putting it through a uh, a wet mill and and that sort of has kind of like a. Uh, um Remember, you know the the log chute ride in Disney World, where you're, you know, you get in the log and it goes down sure, the yeah. uh, thing of water. It's sort of like that, and uh, so your bean goes through this this chute of water uh, and goes through kind of like a cheese grater type of device, which pulps that cherry off of it, and then brings your washed green bean at the end out the other side. So those are your two primary ways of getting that that bean uh, to the the exporter. Uh, and the exporter will convert either of those methods into a green, a processed green bean that they will sell to the consumer. Now, the big issue that you guys have probably been talking about with with others and um, that everyone is talking about in general is supply chain issues, right? So right now, there is a big issue, especially in Brazil, but all over the world and Asia, Vietnam, with getting containers and getting ships there to to actually get that coffee to the people who need it. Um, and this is, this has been affecting the price and the supply and demand issues um, because now destination markets have had to draw down inventories and consume locally coffee that uh, normally would have been, been imported in. Now, once that gets into the destination market and, and that importer has that coffee, they will sell it to the roasters. Um, and those can be large roasters uh, like the the various uh, groups that that roast Dunkin' Donuts coffee, or 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 small roasters or, or mom and pop shops. And when that uh, roaster gets that those bags of green beans, then they will put it uh, in their roasting machines, and they will come up with with blends uh, of coffee. And then it's and then it's delivered to the to the coffee shops.
2: All right. So maybe this is a a good place to uh, explain exactly what is driving the price of coffee higher. And I know you mentioned supply chain issues, but it it seems like, well, with most things that seem to be experiencing a shortage or some degree of scarcity recently, it seems like it's a combination of factors.
3: Absolutely. And it's really been, you know, what do you call it? A perfect storm, you know, a a confluence of, of events here. I am a fundamental um trader at heart that's kind of how I was raised and, and what I believe drives markets in general is supply and demand and fundamentals and and this has been a fundamental story. So coffee is a biannual crop. So it um meaning that the the coffee is a is a tree crop unlike row crops that you're planting uh, with uh, you know corn or or wheat or cotton or whatever. So you have a tree that produces fruit. And, and so what happens is the tree usually produces a lot of fruit one year, and then uh, the next year it sort of has to recover and rests. And so it will have less fruit the next year. And that's sort of the general biannual cycle of coffee. So you tend to have an on-year and an off-year. So we had a very big on-year in 2020 um, where there was a surplus, and abundance of coffee. And then for 2021, we were expecting to have an off year, and that was uh, normal. But but it actually was exacerbated a bit more than that due to droughts in Brazil that, that affected the coffee crop on sort of two ends. Now, again, coffee is a tree crop. So the way that the fruit comes onto the tree is in sort of two phases. Uh, you will have the branch growth the year prior to the coffee crop. And so you will have what we call new growth on the end of the the branch of the coffee tree. And then the following season, you will get flowering and fruit on that new growth. So what we had was we had a drought that stunted that new growth and made less uh, room for coffee cherries. And then we had also a drought during that blooming season, during the flowering season, where, where those would grow into new fruits. So that had kind of a double whammy on already a down year for uh, for coffee. Now, just to make things even more interesting, um, we also had the worst frost that we've seen in Brazil um, in 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 25 years, and so. Even though we had this bad crop that we were like, okay, this is a bad crop, there's a deficit, but you know, we had an on year the year prior, that's normal. So, you know, the market needed to rally and, and all that was was well and good. But at the same time, we had this frost that essentially killed a lot of the new growth now on on the tree that we were expecting for our next on crop, our next on cycle. So that turned out to be an absolute disaster. And that was just back in July, and so we were waiting until the flowering, which uh, which starts in um, sort of October, November, and to see how how bad things were. And we had uh, a decent flowering, so we thought things were going to be okay, but it turned out that uh, what we call the setting was, was subpar. So what what happens is the the branch grows these flowers. Um, and then those become pollinated and, and turn into fruits. They set into a, a bean. But uh, we, much less of those uh, flowers turned into, you know, juvenile beans than, than expected. So now we have a massive deficit uh, in the current year that we're already in. And the bumper crop that we were looking to save this deficit, to solve the deficit, has now been severely compromised by frost. So that's the supply and demand issue, but uh, it it kind of we had other factors as well that went into that. You know, we we've been talking a lot about inflation, right? Um, That's been uh, certainly a factor, and we saw that uh, coffee largely um, rallied uh, into uh, dollar weakness. uh, You know, last uh, the earlier part of this year, um, along with many other commodities, and it's really kind of never looked back.
0: You know, the people are always it's like people hear these supply side explanations and weather in particular. And I feel like it's almost unsatisfying to them. And what you said is like totally makes sense. But they're like, yeah, but sure. Certainly there must be like some big macro story. And you mentioned the dollar a little bit. I'm curious if there's any sort of demand element. And I'm thinking specifically in two ways. Like one is, A, has there been any change in overall volume demand? But B... Did the shift in particularly uh, the developed world in, say, really all over the world from offices where people obviously consume a lot of coffee to to working from home, did that change coffee buying behavior at all in terms of what kind of coffee people drink? And did that have any uh, sort of ripple effects on the overall market?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, there's a reason that we look at the supply side over the demand side. I think, um, at least in coffee, and that's because the supply side is volatile and the demand side is relatively static. So I I always teach in my classes that you know coffee is uh, has inelastic demand, and it also has inelastic supply generally, um, and that's why it's so it's so volatile because because it's a a tree crop. You you can't just plant more uh, if prices are high. You have to plant that crop uh, in an- several years earlier. And so this exacerbates moves on either side. So, you know, prices are high, you plant a bunch of new trees, and then three years later, you start getting the supply from that, um, that point. So then you can get a massive oversupply at that point. But to your, to your point about demand, to the, the initial reaction back in, 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 uh, when COVID first became, people first realized that COVID was going to be here to stay and was going to be a problem. Was a sell-off. The initial reaction was, uh, "This is going to destroy demand." Now, that that was true, and I and I'll tell you why in a second. But but before I do, in general, coffee has very inelastic demand, and that's because you if you're walking down the street and someone is like, "Hey, coffee, uh, free coffee," you might say, "Oh, great, I'll take a cup of coffee, right?" Uh, and then you walk a few more feet, and someone says, "Hey, free coffee," you'd say, "No, thanks, I already have one, right?" You you drink one or two cups of coffee a day, or whatever whatever it is that you drink, whether the price is $10 or $1, right? That's just, it's a very, there's there's not a lot of substitutions for it. You're not like, oh, should I have a Coke or should I have a coffee? You have your coffees, you know, a set amount of them, uh, no matter what. Now, where the demand does have some wiggle room and some play, one of the major ones is in out-of-home consumption. When Starbucks charges you $10 for a latte or whatever it is, uh, then you might if if times are tough, you might say, oh, "I can't afford that. I'm just gonna buy the uh, cafe Bustello at the local bodega and and that'll and that's how I'm gonna have my coffee." So the overall demand tends not to move that much, um but you might shift where you're buying it. And when we had uh, Covid and the lockdowns, that created an intense shift from out of home consumption where the business of coffee shops was all but destroyed, to grocery store, where that was suddenly where uh, – or Amazon or whatever, you know, digital subscriptions. And that was really the model now where people had to consume their coffee. But more than that, the other sort of hidden demand that was destroyed was the sort of social demand for coffee. You mentioned office coffee, right? So whereas in normally you would have had to go to the office and you make a, a brew a pot of coffee and then you brew a second pot of coffee and if no one drinks it, you dump it down the drain, right? Or you go to a wedding and uh, they might brew a couple of big vats of coffee and then they dump down the drain what people don't consume. So all of right. these sort of out-of-home events and and. Uh, or or industry events, right? You know, we, people stopped going to industry events for a while. So all of that demand from catering and, and from uh, coffee shops was, was pretty much destroyed. Hmm.
2: So what happens when coffee prices go a lot higher? Like A, how are the costs actually absorbed or passed on? And then B, do you see a lot of people maybe switching from high quality coffee beans like arabica to something cheaper to try to offset that price increase
3: oh yeah absolutely so you you see you definitely see switching like i mentioned total demand doesn't tend to change that much but you definitely see switching from different uh varieties the covid really hurt the specialty coffee business that has been something that have been growing tremendously the last 20 years as i mentioned you know there there was a large group of people who enjoyed going to these specialty coffee shops and using a chemex or um, you know a special pour over type of delivery system and and drinking these single origin fine coffees that all kind of went away um, and and a lot of that was lost but more generally if you're talking about large price increases and and how are you switching well you you have the switch in both destination markets and in origin so in origin the producing countries tend to drink locally and consume the cheaper uh, qualities of coffee and export the higher qualities uh, that 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 um, are are more valuable so, in in Brazil, for example, they produce both Arabica and Robusta. So, with the the the, the high prices uh, of Arabica, what you'll see is that the the local consumption will shift towards Robusta, uh, and they will export less Robusta and more uh, more Arabica. Um, so, we'll see that shift there. But also on the consumption side, there's plenty of companies and and businesses that do 100% Arabica. Uh, and so they can't really shift that that split. Although they will shift to cheaper versions of arabica if they if they need to. But but many companies just put out like a breakfast blend or you know their you know their French roast or whatever, and they don't specify where where that coffee is coming from. And so then they're really selling more of a flavor profile. And then it's just a matter of uh, optimizing cost versus flavor uh, when 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 prices are expensive.
0: Is is the uh, arabica robusta spread like is that a thing you trade?
3: Yeah, for sure. So there is the we call it the arb, even though it's not really an arbitrage. There's sort of two different products, um, but but that's what we 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 call the arb. So the the arb tends to be have a, a nice little range when things are calm. You know, maybe something like forty to sixty cents or something like that would be a, the typical arabica arbitrage, but. When Arabica goes nuts, that arb tends to just sort of disappear and just become the price of Arabica because Arabica tends to um, outpace Robusta so steeply that it's it ceases to have that sort of range-bound um, nature and just tends to have, uh, I don't know how into options you are, but... Uh, It tends to have the same delta as as Arabica. Hmm.
2: So is trading coffee, uh, you know, given all that volatility that you just laid out and given these different spreads between different types of coffee bean, is trading coffee fun and lucrative? Should we all be going into um, the coffee trading business? (laughs) All become coffee people. You
3: might need to take a couple of courses first at the, the coffee trading academy, <laughs> but uh, no, they they say it's not true. It's a myth, but they say that coffee is the second most uh, traded commodity in the world. Um, mm. For exactly that reason. It's because it is fun. Uh, I, I love the coffee business. It's very interesting. Um, if you travel uh, to do crop tours, you know, you're going to sort of interesting and exciting places to to learn about it. But uh from a lucrative speculative point of view there is volatility in coffee and volatility is how you make or or in in many cases lose money right but but you need that volatility to be able to to trade so the the what we call the the tourists uh interest in coffee is is heavy. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who are you know not necessarily coffee people, not don't necessarily have a coffee background, but like to trade coffee, uh, both you know sort of technical analysts and sort of amateur or armchair uh, fundamental traders. Um, and and there's there's plenty of good ones too. You know there's plenty of people who are are just sort of part time specs who who make money in coffee. Interestingly enough, I I, I only got into Twitter for my business, but in the Twitter sphere, the financial Twitter sphere, uh, there is a lot of uh, heated discussion on on the coffee market and and what's going on there.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, We live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Something I'm
0: curious about is like, okay, we've talked about Arabica and Robusta, but I think there's other types of coffee. And I'm sort of curious, like, you know, more specialized beans or like Kona. I was in Hawaii and I had Kona coffee there. And then I know also like fairly traded coffee, which I imagine has something of a different market structure let's say like I want to sell in volume Kona coffee in New York. Can I predictably use the futures markets for say Arabica as a hedge, as a hedging instrument, even if my end need isn't Arabica, like is there enough relationship generally between the price where these instruments will be uh, of use to me, regardless of whether I'm actually selling Arabica?
3: Well, that's a great question. And um, you know, the, unfortunate answer is that it depends, right? Right. (laughs) Um, So 99% of coffee is either Arabica or Robusta. There is a tiny proportion of coffee that is um, some sort of uh, ancillary uh, species like uh, Liberica, uh, which is sort of a much larger coffee tree. And I've only ever seen that once. And that was that people used them as sort of to border uh, their plantations. So it was just kind of created a sort of a tree border around their plantation uh, that also produced a little bit of coffee. But they're not efficient, um, and they don't produce good-tasting coffee. So almost all of it is Arabica or Robusta. Now, where you see the specialization is really an origin. So it's really – if you're talking about Kona coffee, you're talking about yeah. Arabica that's produced uh, in Kona, ah. um, it's, it, that, that's that's produced oh, okay. there. And other people – like you might – I personally always buy hundred percent Colombian that's my personal coffee that i that I really like and it doesn't have then you know the secret for you it doesn't have to be expensive Colombian coffee uh, if you can just, you just go buy the the, the can of one hundred percent Colombian it's usually going to be pretty decent so most Arabica coffees have a good uh, correlation with the futures market now each will have a differential based on uh, how in demand, really, that origin is versus the the overall the overall market. So, because the futures market is really made up of a basket uh, of what we call milds. Um, so those would be washed coffees. So the the futures market that we look at is sort of like an average of Arabicas, right? Uh, of a certain group of Arabicas. If you look at Colombians, they they tend to be, say, you know, ten or twenty cents more than that. Right now, they're more like 55 or 60 cents more just because of supply and demand issues. If you look at something like Kona coffee, you have almost zero correlation with um, with the futures market because that oh. is such a tiny area of production and such a highly sought after coffee that it's always going to be like 4 or $5 per pound. I'm just making that number up. But uh, so even if the, the futures market is rallying Heavily, that that price tends to be sticky. Same uh, with Kenyan coffee. Kenyan coffees are often like a hundred cents more than than the futures market. So for those sort of very outlier specialty coffees, you're probably not. It's probably not going to make a lot of sense to uh, to use a futures market to hedge it. But for the bulk of coffees, for say the the 20 um, or the ninety percent, it it definitely would make sense.
2: Can we go back to something you said in the very beginning about uh, large multinationals having hedge funds um, that profit off of um, the information flow? And it kind of reminded me of, um, I guess, Goldman Sachs pre um, Volcker rule, sort of pre-financial crisis, where it could have a very lucrative internal trading desk that traded for its own account and it used its sort of um, position in the market looking at the flow, going through it to help it make trading decisions. Is that sort of what's going on here with coffee?
3: I would differentiate, first of all, between, say, a consuming company and a trading company. Okay. This is somewhat of an arbitrary distinction because no matter who's trading coffee, you are and this is something I was taught from day one uh, as a trader, is you're always speculating. Right. If you don't buy, you're speculating that that's you know a good decision. Uh, if you if you're buying now, then you're you're essentially bullish. If you if you're selling more than, than you're buying, then you're bearish. Right. So no matter who you are in the supply chain, you're always speculating somehow in your interaction with the futures market. So if you are an exporter, for example, exporters will trade sort of a, a prop book. Usually, they—they you know different companies have different rules on internally for for managing their price risk, but you know let's say you're just a a a normal local exporter, you buy coffee locally and then you sell it for export. So what they would normally do if they're a differential trader is they would buy coffee locally in local currency from the the farmers and, and the producers, and then they would immediately sell futures against that in the futures market. And that would create a differential position. So they would have, say, the, the current futures price is two dollars, and they're buying coffee at uh, two hundred and thirty uh, cents per pound. So they buy coffee locally at two hundred and thirty cents per pound. They sell a uh, future against it at two dollars per pound. So they would have they would be buying coffee for thirty cents over, and they they've locked in that differential, right? Then when they export that coffee. They sell it to another company, and maybe that company buys it for 32 cents over the market, right? And then they would lift their hedge and sell that uh, coffee to that uh, company. Now, if that exporter is smart, and they know that prices are going to rally, they know that, let's say you're a Brazilian exporter, and you know you need to buy coffee uh, for, your, you know, for your business, and, and and you know that the the crop is going to be small this year and the market's going to go nuts, then maybe you would buy futures ahead of time so that uh, when you're ready to buy physical, you can sell out those futures and, and make make some profit. Or maybe you wouldn't hedge it right away. Maybe you would buy that physical from the farmers and then rather than just immediately turning around and selling futures against it to lock in your hedge, you might wait for it to rally another 5 or 10 cents and then lock in your hedge. Right, so so that's how they're going to be sort of speculating in that in that market, and the consumers are going to do the same thing on their side, sort of the opposite. They'll be buying or selling futures or options to protect their books and protect their hedges in, in different ways. But the trades themselves sometimes have a hedge fund that's either. Or a prop desk that's either part of the company itself or sort of shares a parent company and share information but have sort of Chinese walls and separations. And so they are straight up, you know, uh, I don't want to say gambling, but, you know, speculating uh, without a a physical position in those uh, in those markets that honestly makes a lot of sense. And I think is good for the market because they have insights into what the supply and demand is going to be. And so it is better for the market if we know there's going to be a shortage for the market to start rallying now and repricing to what the proper price of coffee should be, to the levels that are going to incentivize production. You want that to happen as soon as possible. And and the opposite is true on the other side, right? When, when coffee is vastly oversupplied, you need to push the prices down to a point that's going to disincentivize production.
0: You know, we talk about, okay, the price of uh, these commodity coffee futures roughly having doubled in the last year. How volatile is the end price of, say, you know, like I, I let's say I buy coffee at Starbucks, or actually I typically buy coffee at Dunkin Donuts when I buy a cup out there. Like how much is the bean in that price versus, you know, all the other things like the labor of staff at Dunkin Donuts and so
3: forth? It's a great question, and it's always a little bit controversial uh, because – Coffee is the one of the most socially conscious uh, commodities out there, um, I think just by nature of the consumer. I mean, historically, they say that uh, coffee houses created the enlightenment back in the 17th century. So before that, everyone went to the pub. Once uh, people started making coffee houses, they were sober enough to actually sit up and, and talk and think with each other. So that tradition has carried on to today, where if you have coffee houses, the the, the, the consumer of coffee tends to be sort of conscientious and they 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 tend to care about where their beans come from. That's not true, you know, entirely. It's not true across the board. Some people, you know, just wake up and they want their cup of coffee and that's fine. But that sort of um, culture has spilled over into uh, the demand side. You mentioned fair trade coffee uh, before. That's um, something that basically came out of this coffee culture and this desire to ensure that there is sort of equitable treatment uh, of farmers and everything. Because of that demand for it, that is that is spilled into the trade. And so the trade has to facilitate sustainable practices. Something that was pioneered in the coffee industry is what we call uh, certified coffee, um, which is where you have fair trade or rainforest Alliance or right. Oots or whatever, that uh, where you they have to actually certify that these certain practices are being met, you know, in order to to sell your coffee in that way. So to answer your question, uh, so that's why it's a little bit controversial, because when we look at the price of coffee versus what you have in a coffee shop, and I just saw an infographic uh, about this the other day that was put out by the Financial Times, then the is it's it's, it's Pretty depressing, because you say uh, for a cup of coffee that costs say uh, five dollars, uh, maybe about twenty cents of that is going to the grower. I don't think that that's necessarily inappropriate because a lot of the costs are are heavier on the shop side. For example, if you offer free milk with your coffee, that often has almost the same price as a commodity to coffee. so so that's that's going to be one portion. Uh, of your costs the rent for your coffee shop is going to be something like nine times your cost to buy the coffee beans if you have staff that's going to be something like six times the cost of your of your coffee beans right then you have taxes right that's 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 four times the cost of those coffee beans so the, you have all of these different costs that that uh really uh, are built into the Price of that cup of coffee, which feels unfair, you know, in a lot of ways to that to that grower, and you know, there's a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to ensuring that the uh, the grower gets more of that, and uh, you know, I think that's a very that's a very popular industry in the coffee world is 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 facilitating that, but I think what really sort of irks people about it is that it feels like a cup of coffee is almost di- like a direct commodity, right? It feels like, oh, you know, if you buy a, a, an orange in the store, like most of the price for that orange should go to the the grower of the orange, right? Same thing if you buy a cup of coffee, you feel like it's it's coffee. It shouldn't, you know, require anything but money to the grower. But it really requires a whole lot of capital aside from that, that initial bean. That bean is part of it. But you have to, uh, on top of, you know, once that bean just gets sent to the exporter... Then you have a huge capital equipment cost to process it, right? All of that, those wet mills and dry mills we mentioned; those mm-hmm. are those are big, intensive machinery. Then you have to process and uh, transport it, right? The <laughs> we've all seen the prices. If you looked at the Baltic Dry Index or something, you've seen the prices of shipping. Uh, how much of that goes into it? Once it comes to the destination market, the roaster has uh, a huge amounts of costs, energy costs, and uh, and capital equipment costs to turn that green bean into a brown bean. And then once it gets to the shop, right, that shop owner has to pay their staff. They have to pay health insurance. uh, They have to pay taxes. So there is really a whole uh, unseen sort of supply chain of costs that go into that.
2: Yeah. It sounds a bit like oil, right? Where there's a huge outlay for capital and exploration. Um, and then, of course, you have the refining process and all of that actually goes into the, the cost of the end product. I, I, Ryan, I want to ask you the obvious question here, which is how long would we expect these high prices to persist? And I ask because lots of people seem to be suggesting that this is going to be a longer term issue. But we're actually recording this episode on the day that the U.S. Department of Agriculture just released its latest coffee report, which is a thing that I didn't know existed. And um, the department just increased its estimate for world coffee output. So coffee prices are falling, at least for today. So I guess the question is, is this a turning point or would you expect price pressures to be with us for some time?
3: So... uh... I would I'm a fundamentalist and the reason that coffee prices are high I believe are because of supply and demand issues and we are in the midst of those supply and demand issues now historically if you look at the price of coffee on a 50-year chart or 100-year chart or something, you'll see that it looks almost like an EKG, right? You know, like that machine that goes beep in the hospital. Hmm. It, you have these spikes, then it comes down and rests for a minute, and then it has a spike and it comes down and rests for a minute, and it tends to do that between one dollar and three dollars. So 250 is as uh, my boss or 225, as my my old boss used to say at the hedge fund, it's kind of half pregnant. Um it's not really it hasn't really hit that full three dollar. This is a major problem mark that we typically expect from coffee. Now, I don't know if it's gonna actually go there or not. Uh maybe we've maybe we've solved the supply issues already. But it doesn't seem like that. It seems more like in and, and the USDA uh is great for things like corn and wheat and especially those US centric markets. The it's not the people in the coffee world don't pay a ton of attention to it. Um, it's not. It's not necessarily market moving, but uh, if you look to the people in the know right now, it's all about revising down Brazil estimates um, for this coming crop, and that's really what it's all about. We're we're in the deficit market right now. That's for sure. Now the question is, will 22 be balanced, a little bit of a surplus or a deficit? And there are some people saying that it's going to be a massive deficit. They're kind of outliers. I think the The consensus is more for a a modest deficit, a moderate deficit, which is no small thing on the back of a big deficit, right? Especially when you're expecting a a surplus after that. So that tightness should, in theory, uh, continue uh, into the next deficit year. But the real estimates so we're right now we're in the cycle uh, of brazil where the, the flowering has happened the setting has happened but the beans are really too small to really be able to get an accurate uh, count and gauge yet of what that crop's going to be but in january we should be able to get a more accurate count we'll start to see the real estimates coming out as to what that crop will be and that's largely going to determine the, the direction the price of
0: coffee Ryan, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. I just learned a ton about coffee and mm-hmm. really appreciate you joining us.
3: My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much, Ryan.
0: That was great. Thank you so much, Ryan. <laughs> Tracy, you know, I know people get frustrated a little bit about all these sort of like weather and idiosyncratic explanations because Mm -hmm. they think like, oh, surely it must be all about the Fed or inflation or something like that. But it really does feel like coffee, especially as he described in the beginning, like, yeah, it's really about like a bunch of weird weather stuff and a lot of it, particularly in Brazil.
2: Yeah. I mean, it does seem like we've had these events where a confluence of different factors come together to create, as Ryan said, the the perfect storm for a lot of commodity prices recently. But I guess on the other hand, you might expect that to happen, given that we've just had a global pandemic, which has really upended the way we do things normally.
0: Right. A pandemic... Isn't technically a storm, but if you you know if you you, you don't have to um, you don't have to extend that metaphor or that analogy like too widely mm. to say like how we could use the term perfect storm and have it encompass that. And of course, as as Ryan pointed out, you know there's energy prices go into coffee. He mentioned the Baltic Dry Index and shipping, so all of these things getting jostled or uh, whacked at once. Uh, yeah, like, of course, like, it's going to happen even in coffee at the, uh, you know, in the middle or, you know, in the later stages, hopefully, of a pandemic.
2: Whackflation uh, strikes again. Actually, there's one thing ah, I'm bummed I didn't ask uh, Ryan this, but I wanted to ask how much of the buying that we've seen over the past year that's. Helping to push up prices, how much of that is people buying in order to pad their inventories um, just in case they can't get they can't get coffee beans in the future? Because again, this is an issue that we see in lots of different commodities. This bullwhip effect, where businesses. um, People find it difficult to balance their ordering with actual demand. And so you get these big swings in inventory and then a big swing in the price as well. So I'm curious whether or not that's coming into play. But um, yeah, I guess I'll have to DM Ryan on uh, on coffee Twitter.
0: Yeah, we could uh, we could write a a follow up uh, blog post on that for the blog. But yeah, I mean, you know, as you pointed out, like everyone in the industry, more or less has some reason to have a prop book on uh, on the side, or as you put it, like everyone is also kind of speculating as well. And so if there are these concerns, I thought that was really interesting about actually the lack of sensitivity on the supply side mm. for tree grown crops versus other kinds of crops. So obviously, you know, we talked about, you know, talk about like corn and rice and soy. And if it looks like the price is surging, then a farmer could say, oh, I'm just going to like, Reallocate more of my uh my acreage next year to soy or corn or whatever it is that's a really interesting distinction that I had never thought about that that's inherently impossible with a tree grown crop that is gonna have a minimum like say like two or three year cycle before that tree bears fruit. it will be kind of interesting like I hadn't thought about that at all, but you know, like watching the next two years now I'm gonna like oh do about the the sort of like the supply sensitivity to crops or to any commodity in which there is that uh longer uh longer lead time on the supply side.
2: definitely joe what's the uh what's the best coffee that you've ever had
0: oh good question And it's probably just like at a 7-eleven or a dunkin donut <laughs> somewhere and a styrofoam cup like to me you know like on the on a road trip big style a big cup like a really big cup of coffee sort of just like to the spot. What about you? What you probably have, knowing you, you probably have like some very specific bean that I'm you not, seek out when you're in some city. No, no,
2: no. I'm not like I'm not a coffee snob. Um, I I like plain black coffee as well. But I would say probably the best coffee I've ever had was um in Vietnam. I had one of those uh egg cream coffees that has like Ooh, an yeah. egg mixed into it. That was so good.
0: You are a chocolate snob though, right?
2: No, not really. I, I am an equal opportunity uh, chocolate consumer. I like all the chocolate like from <laughs> from Hershey's all the way up to the very fancy stuff.
0: All right. well, anyway, plenty more to talk about. We'll have Ryan back on next year or uh, to talk about what happens if the if supply and demand normalize and we'll be watching those January uh, January bean reports from Brazil.
2: <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, shall we leave it there?
0: Let's leave it there. All
2: right. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Ryan Delaney. He's at Coffee Ninja Ryan. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: at the Hartford.com.